mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these are qualities that are taken to be central to, as it were, bringing us home to freedom, to peace, to understanding, to awakening. One scholar talked about these qualities as the five cardinal virtues of Buddhist practice. And we can think of them in relation to our own practice in this way. We, we each have probably have certain of these qualities in which we're more gifted than others. Some of us may have a lot of faith, but may find it harder to develop mindfulness. Others of us may, may have a strong initial element of wisdom, but maybe not so much mindfulness. You know, others of us may have deep concentration abilities, but little understanding. And we can think of these qualities as telling us that we can start, really, where we're most uh, gifted in one of these qualities, or where one of the qualities is strongest. And as we practice, each of the qualities will bring the other ones uh, along. So, for example, the uh, classical understanding uh, that you find in the text, and the reason for the order of these five, is that in the uh, context of the Buddha's teachings in in India, uh, the first factor of faith or or confidence was taken to be a starting point. One would have faith or confidence in the awakening of the Buddha, in the teachings or Dharma, in the community of practitioners. And this faith would set in motion effort, would set in motion the effort to practice And that would make possible the further development of mindfulness, would lead to further concentration, and the fruit of that would be be insight. So we could think of these teachings as letting us know how do we get from faith to liberating insight. That's one way of looking at them. And yet um, we can also see that we could really start in different places. We could start, for example, with, uh, in the example I was giving in response to your question, we could start with noticing that I'm in distress. You know? And, I, and that can be, then we can start with mindfulness. I'm in distress. Oh my gosh, I didn't want this. <laughs> what should I do? <laughs> you know, what should I, what should I do with this? Uh, uh, and we can, we can say, oh, I'm starting to feel sorry for myself. I noticed that. And then I can say, oh, I'm going to make the effort to do some metta, to do some loving kindness for myself. And uh, be, I, I can't do that unless I'm mindful. So the mindfulness can set in motion some effort. And I can remember that, yes, it's worked in the past and my teachers recommend it. And that's, you might say, an element of confidence. So confidence kicks in, and and as I do the practice, I, uh, I you know I do it and I just get into my self pity and oh this is bad when's it going to be over oh maybe I should eat something, <laughs> you know, and and then I say no I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, cultivate uh, these qualities in a concentrated way I'm gonna just let go of the of the distractions I'll just let go of the distracting thoughts. I won't do that. In this case, I won't, I won't try to get rid of an unpleasant experience by, by moving towards the kitchen. And, and this would be developing the factor of concentration. And as, uh, you know, as that quality of concentration develops, maybe at a certain point I have some insight. Uh, the wisdom factor arises, oh, you know, um, when I'm in distress... I don't need to be so reactive. Maybe I don't have to um, uh, 
take my thoughts, my emotions quite so seriously or personally. You know, I can really see them as happening because of patterns. So in this example, we will have started with mindfulness. And in a way, as we work with it, we call into play uh, effort and faith and uh, concentration. And and then that leads to wisdom. And so, uh, and I think we could really start with any of them and move uh, and invoke the other factors. So let me, let's remember that quality that uh, each of the qualities can lead to the other qualities. They're sort of, uh, they're sort of in a family and they, they have influences on each other as family members do. And the interesting thing also, maybe this is somewhat like a family, is that when they're all deeply, deeply cultivated, when faith or confidence or effort or uh, mindfulness or concentration or wisdom are deeply cultivated, they actually tend to look alike. Maybe like family members when you really boil them down or something. And as, you, as we do the practice, as we get to very high levels of faith or uh, effort or mindfulness, we almost go beyond them. And I'm going to talk about that at the end, the way that when we go deeply into, into these qualities, we almost come back to uh, our, our birthright and our home in this peaceful presence, this peaceful, wise, responsive presence. And in, in that uh, state, in a way, we're beyond trying to be mindful we're beyond trying to concentrate. We're beyond trying to be effortful. And the effort is effortless. And the mindfulness is choiceless. And the concentration doesn't separate itself from its object. And the wisdom is beyond working with uh, views and concepts. And that's, that's our direction. And that's, the, that's what we touch, we touch often. So let me go through the five qualities and then I'll come back to that wonderful sounding state of presence which we all have, uh, I know we've all, we've all experienced at times and which is really, it's really important to remember in daily life. So the first quality of faith, the, the Pali word is sada, S-A-D-D-H-A. And it's... Uh, Faith is actually um, a little bit of a problematic translation because in the West, faith often suggests some kind of uh, belief about, in in the the realm of spirituality or, or religion, it involves some sort of belief in tenets that we really, tenets or views or religious dogmas that we really don't, don't know. And it it's, tends to refer to a belief-oriented uh, way of being. And the, the connotations in the uh, Buddhist context, the connotations of sada, are a little bit more about confidence, uh, trust, uh, qualities of um, Having some almost some sense in the guts that this is this is a good way to go. Uh, for example, it may be as I as I mentioned classically, uh, this confidence or faith would be a faith in the uh, the awakening of the Buddha, the teachings and the um, and the sangha, the, the community of practitioners. We can also think of it as a uh, a trust that it's, it's actually possible to be happy. That this life is workable and that we can actually come to some kind of peace. That's, that, that's a certain faith or confidence that we might have. And it might come from certain moments that we've experienced. Like in your question, you tasted a certain presence in relation to uh, very difficult issues. And you tasted a certain peace. And that uh, part of the quality of faith or confidence is knowing that that's possible. And the faith or confidence may be um, 
a remembrance of an experience, and, it, and sometimes it may not feel very strong. But the faith or confidence builds, and these, these kinds of uh, breakthrough experiences that we have sometimes, where we're just, uh, where, we, where we feel the unity with life, or we feel our own goodness, or we feel the possibility of happiness, are very, very important to our practice because they, we can have access to them in difficult times, you know. Uh, and, and sometimes when we're in um, crises, they can be there. And I was thinking, I, I may have told this story, but when I, when I was coming to California, I had this very uh, dangerous episode where my transmission in my car suddenly uh, broke down. Uh, on Interstate 70, and my car came to a stop in the fast lane on Interstate 70, going over a bridge with no breakdown lane at night. Right? <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> so something worked out. But, uh, but I, I found... Um, and first of all, I, I had mindfulness and I said, this is a dangerous situation. <laughs> Which was very helpful because I could have just freaked out, right? This, this, this is, I felt like my practice was right there. I was really amazed because it wasn't like I said, well, now it's time to bring my practice into play. It's not, it was more like it was there and, I, and later I reflected really happily about the, the, the fruits of the practice. That I, I, was, I was kind of amazed because I was right there. I wasn't fearful. I knew what was happening. I knew I needed to act, or very unpleasant things would happen. <laughs> and and uh, and I was very clear-headed. I did not. I was not anxious or reactive. And I later I took that to be some of the fruits of practice. And I was amazed how that was right there in a crisis. That 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 was there. And I think uh, sometimes that can be there in a crisis. But these these experiences of seeing clearly, of being present, or they might be our experiences of love, or they might be our experiences of, of peace in the woods or on the mountains that really give us this confidence that happiness and peace are possible. Another aspect of uh, confidence or faith is the sense that things are workable that our experience is workable. And to me, this is one of the gifts or glories of this practice, that it reminds us, it tells us that difficult experiences are workable. This is really what your question was about. Was it Laurel? Mm-hmm. You know, that Laurel's question was about, uh, maybe it was a, a chance for you to remember that difficult experiences are workable, to remember more fully that, that uh, things are workable, and in the midst of a difficult situation, it's that quality of faith or confidence which arises and says, oh, I've done this in the past. It's workable. What should I do? What's happening? And we can, again, we can summon, uh, when faith can arise, and we can sometimes summon the mindfulness to say, okay, what's happening? Um, it's dark. There are two lanes. Uh, one out of control, her daydreaming driver could really uh, could hit my car very easily, and and just that mindfulness sets in action things, and uh, and so that sense of workability is a key aspect of, of faith, remembering that that things are workable. As we mature in the quality of faith or confidence, faith moves towards being what in Buddhist tradition is called verified faith the faith or confidence starts to merge with knowledge because we have a background of experiences. And we start to, the faith starts to be less a faith in what someone else said or something that sounds good or something that happened once. And it starts to be a faith that may be built on many of our experiences and connect with our understanding and our teachings. And that's that's when faith becomes more mature. I think eventually, at the, at the deeper levels of faith, 
it's a kind of resting in life. It's a kind of resting in being in which we, in a sense in which we are not grabbing hold of things because there's something about our very being which is about peace and goodness. And again, it doesn't mean not to act in certain circumstances, but there's this quality of a resting in being which um, I think the Buddha evokes. And if do you remember a few, I think it was a few months ago, I read from the journals of Eddie Hillesom, the young woman who was living in Amsterdam in, in the 1940s. And she wrote about her experiences under the Nazi occupation, a Jewish woman. She eventually died in Auschwitz. And in her journals, she seemed to show a spiritual growth that was very accelerated. And she came to both be tremendously responsive to the people around her, but touch some kind of joy in life itself that was stronger than the suffering in those situations. And in her, in her journal, she talks about a quality that sounds like a kind of resting in the beauty of life, even not running away at all from the horrors. In fact, she, she chose to be with those horrors. She could have escaped, but she took it as her responsibility. And I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday who, who I think... Um, we were talking about that quality because she was saying, I feel like I've really arrived. I'm happy in my marriage, in my work. I live in a beautiful place. I had a very difficult childhood. I didn't think I'd ever get there. And I feel like these are wonderful, but I feel partly because of the past difficulty. I feel like I'm, I'm grasping some. You know, I'm scared. I'm, I'm happy. What's going to happen now? And we talked about the possibility of a kind of something that might be a letting go of the grasping. The grasping after this and more of a resting and trust in life. And I think this is what the quality of faith or confidence is as it gets further developed. The second of the five spiritual faculties is effort her energy. And the, the Pali word is virya. V-I-R-I-Y-A. And it's, uh, it's a quality of uh, being able to do what's necessary to grow spiritually. This is, this is the context of action. It's the, it, it, effort is in, for some teachers, effort is taken as the most important thing. I remember Suzuki Roshi once said in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he says, Effort is the most important thing. There is nothing else important. <laughs> and I, I was thinking of this when I was, think, I was thinking back on um, some years ago when I was, teaching, I was teaching at the University of Kentucky. And I, I didn't like working with a, a grading system. And so I gave my students a choice to grade themselves. I had to agree with their evaluation, and if there was a difference, we would discuss it. (laughs) But uh, what I came to see in that teaching was that what I most valued in my students' work was their effort. Because what I didn't like about the grading was that it ranked people, and someone who put out tremendous effort and had this tremendous growth, the grade might not reflect that. And so I came in my teaching to most value whether there was really a strong and sincere effort. And I tried to have that be the center to the extent that I would do grading or evaluation. I tried to have it there. And I thought, this is, this is, what I, this is all I ask of people. You know, because, uh, again, people start at different places, they have different gifts, but all we can ask of ourselves, I think, is that we've made a full effort. It's that quality by which, uh, in sports, they say, I left it all on the field, or I left it all on the court. Do you know that, those phrases? That sense of, I've, you know, I think when we have put out our best effort, there's a kind of contentedness, isn't there? When we know that we've put out our best effort, in some ways the outcomes don't matter. You know, 
I know I really tried the hardest I could with that relationship. I tried the hardest I could to make that job work. You know, and that's the quality of effort. And we, we aspire towards this uh, fullness of effort. In the Buddha's teaching, effort is talked about according to a very, uh, an interesting formula, which goes something like this. Uh, he said there are four ways, there are four kinds of effort, and they're basically about developing what he called wholesome states and avoiding unwholesome states. And I'm going to give you the way the Buddha said it and then give you a modern translation. This is what the Buddha said was the core of effort. Avoiding unarisen, unwholesome states. Abandoning arisen, unwholesome states. Developing unarisen, wholesome states. Maintaining arisen, wholesome states. It's avoiding unarisen, unwholesome. Abandoning arisen, unwholesome. Developing unarisen, wholesome. Maintaining arisen, wholesome. (laughs) Now, my sense is that when the Buddha said these in his native language, they resonated in that language a little bit more than they do for us. <laughs> that there was, I could imagine that people would hear that and I would say, yes, that's clear. It's completely logical. There's, you know, it's kind of like there's this grid of the, you know, you have the arisen and the unarisen and the wholesome and the unwholesome and they described four logical possibilities and he's worked it all out and given us a complete inventory of how to develop effort. And amazing. And, uh, and also probably that the, the way it, it rolls off the tongue in the Pali is a little bit different from the way it rolls off the tongue in English with the translation. So um, one of my students said, those are just like what we do in canoeing. These are, the, these are exactly the same for effort in canoeing. And here they are. The, here are the canoeing reinterpretations. <laughs> of the four wise efforts. The first one is stay out of trouble. The second one is know what to do if you get in trouble. The third one is develop some good habits. And the fourth one is keep practicing and then keep them in good shape. (laughs) Those are the same thing as what I said about the arisen and the unarisen. (laughs) Stay out of trouble. Know what to do if you get in trouble. Uh, Develop some good habits that you don't have and keep the good ones that you have, and keep them going. Practice them. So I want to just be very brief about those, but this is one way of looking at, and this is the the core way that the Buddha taught, about looking at at our quality of effort in our practice. And so the the first one, which which I'll I'll use the uh, canoeing way of expressing it, the, uh, the staying out of trouble, is actually very important. This is a key aspect of effort. It might mean... Uh, being careful about being near states that we get in trouble with. It might, it might mean being careful with uh, the input that we take into our system, being careful with the stimuli, being careful with discussions we get into, knowing which kinds of discussions or stimuli or inputs take us into territories that we know are not very good for ourselves. You know, whether it's things we eat or drink, whether it's kinds of thought patterns we have, whether it's uh, even certain friends that we have or so-called friends that we have. And so this first aspect is being really clear about what uh, can get us in trouble mentally, emotionally, and in other ways, and taking the effort to not go there. And that's the first aspect of this effort. The second aspect is for the canoeist, when you're in trouble, what do you do? And of course, for the canoeist, it would mean knowing certain kinds of moves or strokes. And it's kind of the same way for meditators. Again, this, is, this would relate to uh, Laurel's question. One of the great uh, powers of meditation is that we start to develop a repertoire for things to do when we get in trouble. Okay? And so trouble becomes workable. That's the key thing. Trouble becomes workable. What do we do when we get in trouble? Well, okay, what do we do? Breathe deeply. If we're in emotional distress, we can do the metta that I talked about. We can, we can uh, practice some kindness to ourselves. We can use mindfulness. 
We can be aware of it. We can cultivate our wisdom and know what to do. We can know antidotes to difficult experiences. You know, if we're feeling fear, maybe we do metta. If we're feeling, uh, if we're if we're experiencing self-judgment, that's getting very harsh. We can just see it and name it. We can sometimes do a kind of inquiry. What is this about? What is this distress about? What is this trouble about? We can go deeply into it. We can see sometimes touch the emotional pain by staying with the heart area when we get in trouble. Uh, we can do reflections on, on uh, how we might act wisely when, we, when we're in emotional or mental distress. And so, again, we could give a whole talk on uh, the, the repertoire of tools for uh, what we do when we get in trouble. And it might be something that you consider even naming to yourself right now what are the tools, you know, what are the tools which we use for, uh, for getting out of trouble? The, then the third quality is cultivating good habits. Or there, there has to be a certain amount of effort not only to uh, stay out of trouble, not only to act skillfully when we're in trouble, but we also uh, need to develop good habits. So this might mean the effort to meditate. It might mean the effort to develop more mindfulness or concentration. It might be, it might be a certain effort around what's good for our body, for our heart, to take the effort to do things which really bring about uh, better qualities or better ways of doing things. And then the, the fourth aspect of effort is keeping the good stuff going. You know, it's keeping the uh, good habits going, the good qualities going. And it seems to, when I was reflecting on this, I was thinking that what's really important for this quality of effort is that it's really important for us to know what our good qualities are in order to keep them going. And sometimes I feel we, we're not always in touch with our own goodness, with our own good qualities. And sometimes we let the qualities that we actually have actually developed pretty well. We let them atrophy or we let them uh, uh, decline. And so this fourth kind of effort would have to do with, with really knowing what the good qualities are that we have and exercising them, keeping them going. Again, in the context of meditation, it would mean having uh, a regular practice. Uh, and then there are a number of things which can, which can help us with that. Community helps these, obviously... Sittings like this help a lot, and, and there are a number of different uh, aspects of effort. Then the third quality is mindfulness. And we know that uh, mindfulness is a quality of our practice which, is, which is, is, is in some ways at the center. And in this list of five, mindfulness is a kind of balancing quality. It lets us, it lets us uh, know what's happening so that we can apply wisdom, who are called to mind faith, who are apply concentration. And we know if we've read the, uh, the, the text on the foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha said that mindfulness was actually the key element. If he had to name one, the key element for developing liberating wisdom was mindfulness, is mindfulness. That this is the practice of being present to what's happening, being in the moment to what's happening. Uh, the, there's, in, in the uh, Chinese language, there's a way that mindfulness was expressed through a pictogram, and it combines uh, two characters. One of them is present moment, and the other one is a sign or a symbol for heart or home. So it's like mindfulness is keeping our home, keeping our heart in the present moment. Isn't that a beautiful way of expressing it? Staying with our heart in the present moment, not losing, not losing that quality of heart. And so in the, in the, in the mindfulness practice, we cultivate the ability to be present. And it's not something that we know immediately, that we can do immediately, that we need at first usually to start with the breath and the body to develop concentration, to come to mindfulness. We, when we set up mindfulness practice, we 
we, uh, we engage in what we could call both a path of purification and a path of discovery. We practice mindfulness. We say, I'm going to be aware. And what do we find? We find all the ways, the 10,000 ways that we can't be mindful. You know, we find all our distractions, our daydreaming, our patterns of thought, our reactions. And this is, this is both a path of purification and a path of discovery. Every moment that we're mindful, there we learn something. We see where we're unable to be present. And as we go further, we bring mindfulness in some depth and specificity to the different qualities of uh, our mind, the different states of our mind, our body. We look more carefully at anger or at self-judgment or at joy than we've ever done. We really discover the basic ingredients of our experience, of our life, of our mind. We work with the body, we work with the quality of pleasant and unpleasant, and you may know the second foundation of mindfulness is really partly a response to to your question. The second foundation of mindfulness tells us that it's very crucial to observe the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that occurs any moment in our experience. And sometime you might, if you haven't, you might just take a whole sitting and just try to be aware as best you can of how pleasant or unpleasant or neutral is happening moment to moment. I once did this at a retreat for about a day and a half, just looking at pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And I was, I was amazed because the teachings are that there's a quality of unpleasant or, un, or pleasant or neutral in every moment. And I found that every, you know, for a period of time, Every single experience that was coming my way, I would, I would tag it with pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and I would kind of want to get rid of the unpleasant and want to have the pleasant hang around. This was most evident in the dining hall. And I would sit there, I would sit in the dining hall, and I found when I was looking at unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral, every person in the dining hall I had assigned to a category. Do you know how we do that? Do you know how that? And, and that was shocking. Like, oh my God, look at that. And when we do the mindfulness, so a lot of the mindfulness practice is as um, Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, said once. He said, he said uh, mindfulness is in a way bad news. <laughs> we learn, oh my God, is that what I'm doing? And, we, and then we, we explore it some. So we explore the feeling tone, the sense of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. We look in depth at our mind, at our mental and emotional states. We learn how to be present with the body. We, as the phrase goes, come back to our senses. You know, in our culture, often we've not been uh, trained to be able even to be in contact with our senses. So that's, uh, again, part of this voyage of discovery and mindfulness for many of us is to be in touch with our bodies, to be with our senses. The fourth quality is concentration. We're getting towards wisdom, so we're almost, we're almost at wisdom, where we're going to get to at the end. And um, concentration is a very important quality in practice, and I think it can be misunderstood. And concentration is probably not a very good uh, translation of the word. You may know the word is samadhi. You know, you've probably heard samadhi there. I know there's they're meditation cushion manufacturers called samadhi cushions, and there's probably by this point a samadhi tea and <laughs> hair coloring. And, and um, the, the connotations in the Pali language are much more a sense of collectedness, composure, and unification. When we think of concentration in the English language, sometimes we think we can think of this disembodied mind focusing like a laser on some object. And that is actually not a very developed sense of concentration, that the more developed sense of concentration brings together our whole being. And so concentration can be a misleading translation. It's more more a sense of unification. And insofar as it's unified, it, it actually has a quality of goodness. That the quality, you know, when we think of that laser-like ability to concentrate on something, and maybe sometimes in a disembodied way, well, that kind of concentration can produce uh, concentration camps, so to speak. 
I didn't I didn't intend a, a pun there. <laughs> but it but it's interesting, you know? It's interesting that this we might call it a very su- a more superficial level of concentration is in a way um, um, non-ethical. It can be used for good or bad. But as we get towards that sense of concentration which is more unified, it tends to it tends to link with these other qualities and is more a force of goodness. Now that being said, what's at the center of the Buddhist teachings is that concentration, although incredibly valuable for penetrating deeply into our experience, is not enough. That one can be deeply concentrated and not so wise. And this is, this is, this is why the Buddha taught both concentration and wisdom. That someone can be, and I know this from my own experience, um, when in, my early, in my early practice, I had abilities at concentration and I would sit for long periods of time and I thought that if I sat in a concentrated state for long periods of time, I would be very, um, I should be very wise and everything should kind of take care of itself. And I would compare myself and think myself better than people who didn't sit as long or, or didn't, didn't seem as concentrated. And I got a little confused because one of my teachers sat much shorter periods than me and, and didn't seem as concentrated, and yet I knew he was incredibly wise. And so it started, I started to wonder about it. But as, um, as Achan Cha says in one of his, uh, in, in the book, A Still Forest Pool, he says, I have seen chickens sit for days. <laughs> <laughs> Another story was told. <laughs> so... So concentration is helpful, but it's not the whole thing. And there's a story that I think uh, Guy Armstrong taught, uh, told uh, that I just heard a few days ago, which is a nice one, there, that um, he told the story of a nun in, um, I believe, in uh, Thailand who, had these great, who has these great abilities of concentration. Reportedly, she can stay in meditation for a week. Amazing abilities of concentration. And of course, when we get into the depths of concentration, we get into these, these experiences which, in which very unusual things happen. And they presumably happened for this woman, for this nun. And yet the report was, when she came out of these seven days, she complained all the time. <laughs> and she went around the monastery, you know, basically judging people and complaining, and she didn't seem to have a lot of qualities of letting go or, or wisdom, you might say. And it was, it was sort of a, uh, you might say, a cautionary tale that concentration and wisdom are not the same things, and one can be quite concentrated and not necessarily wise. So, let me, so that, let, that brings me to this quality of wisdom, the last quality. Uh, wisdom is... connected with insight. And it's insight which is taken to be that which liberates. When we see something, we can let go of our years of reactivity. We can let go of certain patterns that are not helpful. And the the way that we work with insight in this practice, I like to call it the exhaustion method. We use the exhaustion method for developing wisdom. Now, I probably could use another word that would be more marketable because I, I don't think we would put that in the spirit rock literature. Mm-hmm. Come, enjoy the exhaustion method. <laughs> but when you think about it, I actually think there's some truth to it. This is, this is a method of learning by which we look at the same patterns over and over and over again. We see things over and over and over again. Sometimes when we're in the beginning of practice, we think, oh, I'll see it and then I'll change instantly. And that may happen for some of our, some of our um, habits. And it's actually incredibly um, encouraging when that happens. And that does happen. But there remain some of our deeper habits. And for that, we need the exhaustion method. The exhaustion method is we keep on looking at the same habits over and over again. And eventually, being slow learners, we see. You know, so, for example... Uh, one of my practices that's been really important has been working with uh, judgment, self-judgment and judgment of others. And 
I was, I think, raised to be somewhat judgmental. And it has its good aspects. It means I see a lot about other people. I just tend to think I'm better or something, <laughs> you know, or that I'm right, you know. So, I mean, we all have our... We all have these qualities which sort of combine vices and virtues, right? And so for me, an important part of my practice was looking at judgment over and over and over and over again. Looking at it with mindfulness, looking at it and seeing patterns, going into the body and the heart and seeing, as I came to see, that a lot of my judgments came out of a kind of pain. That, in a a way, my judgments were ways to cover up a pain, and the pain might be that of um, anger or sadness, you know, that I might uh, come to judge others because they weren't seeing me, or I didn't feel seen or heard. And I would use judgment as a way of saying, they don't matter, you know, I'm okay. And it would be at first, it's kind of survival mechanism, but as it grew over time, it made it harder for me to touch the initial pain. And as I did this practice, I came to touch that, and I came to watch judgment. I think there's still work to do, but, but I probably have watched, you know, whatever, a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand times. This is how wisdom develops. This is why we don't do weekend workshops with money-back guarantees. You know, that, that it, it, it is a learning process that takes time. But this is how wisdom really is cultivated. And in the usual way of understanding this quality of wisdom, it's often understood as, as linked with two particular teachings. One, the teaching of the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, dukkha, or suffering, and not-self. And it's also linked with the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So sometimes when, when uh, sort of crystallized versions of, w- of what wisdom is are given, they're given in the Buddhist teachings in terms of the Four Noble Truths. That is, the fact that there's suffering, the fact that the cause of suffering is some kind of compulsive grasping after some aspect of our experience. Thirdly, the possibility that, it's, that peace is available, that it's not necessary to do that. And fourthly, that there's a practical path involving meditation and ethics and ways of living in the world and uh, ways of understanding that are very practical, can be done, and that lead towards the end of suffering. And so this last quality of wisdom is typically understood when it's understood in its very condensed form as understanding of the four truths the Four Noble Truths, or the Three Characteristics of Existence, or should they maybe end the Three Characteristics of Existence. And so we see these qualities, these five qualities, as at the heart of our work. And I know for myself that my practice tends to accelerate when I can see these qualities as ones that are at the center of my daily life. And that's what I think is hard for us, because... In a way, we need support to remember that these qualities are what we want to develop. We can, we can do a lot internalizing these qualities, but it's, that's why it's so valuable to be on retreat or be in a group, because it's as it were, just being here, we're reminded, ah, I want these qualities, faith and effort and mindfulness and um, concentration, and wisdom, I want these to be at the center of my life. And you might want to add another two or three, that's okay. <laughs> but something, and, you know, maybe compassion would, would be there. But, this, but something like this list, for me, it's like, can I be at work and think, oh, I want to develop these qualities. These are at the center. You know, and how can I do that? And have them really come to uh, guide one in one's daily life. To be reminded, to be reminded that these are really the heart of our practice, and these are the qualities that, in a way, uh, take us home, take us to that quality of, of presence, of peace, and and a freedom that this practice points to. So I'll stop there. 
So, any questions or comments or reflections? Please, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I had to I had to find skillful ways to work within the system, you know, and and still not not violate the system, but somehow um, have some clear understandings. But yeah, the whole educational system is 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 not geared. It, there's it, this does damage, doesn't it? It does damage to to us, and most of us probably have suffered from that damage from the schools of of somehow not. Uh, not seeing that 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 uh, being where we are and doing our best is all we can ask. It's all we can ask of us at any moment, isn't it? And yet, um, the culture doesn't doesn't support that in a, in a in a clear way in schools, most obviously. Yeah. That you know, thank you. That that it is very challenging, and I gave obviously a very condensed description of that. I, I think about a year or two ago, I, I did give a talk on judgments here. Judgment is such a wonderful, difficult topic. <laughs> Maybe come back to that. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it takes a certain amount of mindfulness and concentration to do that work in the context of meditation. That uh, The starting point is just noticing that judgments are happening and being able to note it and, and watch it and stay with it and say, oh, judgment. Oh, judgment. Oh, judgment. <laughs> and, and then uh, when there's a certain quiet in the mind, sometimes one can go to the level of the heart and just see what's there without trying to find anything there or manipulate it, but just to see what's there. And sometimes the pain that's there will, will make itself manifest. Yeah. And so that, that's a very valuable practice with fear or actually with positive qualities as well. It's Sometimes in spirit rock circles, we talk about that as the dropping down practice, dropping down to the level of the body and the heart, and and just seeing what's there. And it does take some quiet in the mind to do that. It can't really do it if you're trying to figure it out. So it takes it takes some quiet. Please. It's a good question. The question of the uh, distinction between mindfulness and concentration and. Uh, I think at at developed levels, it they're very very similar. Um, there there are some distinctions, and so concentration is sort of classically defined as a kind of one pointedness, being with one object and just staying there, and the ability to do that, and uh, and yet um, and and so that itself is a kind of practice, like when we're just with the breath. That's essentially a concentration practice. It's not a mindfulness practice. Because when we're just with the breath and every time our mind goes away, we bring it back to the breath, we're actually developing concentration and not necessarily mindfulness. So, uh, And yet, typically we begin with the breath because a certain minimal level of concentration is necessary even to do mindfulness practice. For me to be with the uh, sensation in my leg... Uh, I need to be with that. And in a way, mindfulness practice stays with the object. In that sense, it's concentrated, but constantly has the ability to change the objects. So mindfulness requires a certain amount of concentration, but one can do mindfulness with a minimal level of concentration. And one can also do it with a heightened level of concentration. I think in some traditions of doing this practice, particularly in Asia, uh, one would develop concentration to a pretty high level before even doing the mindfulness practice. Here we do it a little bit, we develop it so it's kind of enough just so you're not distra- we're not distracted too much. Uh, so does that get at it? Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, I used... <laughs> no, I, I, I was going to make a joke, but it actually wasn't such a joking situation. Um, what happened was that I, uh, first of all, I stood some distance from the car in case someone, because I, I don't know if I told you, but I, it was, there was no breakdown lane and there was, I was over a culvert 60 feet above going down into uh, um, cement. So it wasn't good to fall over that side. Right? And so I stood, first of all, I said, I know I need to stay away from the car in case the car gets hit, that it doesn't then hit me. And I watched every car coming to make sure they saw me. Within a few minutes, someone came and 
and said, I'll go call AAA. At that time, there weren't cell phones. And, uh, and the, you know, and 20 minutes went by and nothing happened. Another person came and said, I'll call, and AAA wasn't coming. And so eventually, um, an old uh, beat-up car came by, and they volunteered to push me off the freeway. And I got pushed off the freeway and left in a warehouse district, and then I had to deal with that for about the next four hours <laughs> and still still get to AAA, but that's what happened. It was actually a, 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 an old beaten-up car of bodhisattvas came and pushed me off the road. And uh, it was very beautiful. I was very touched. You know, It was like they're very poor people, and the people who were more wealthy, they just drove by. It was very moving. Thank you for your question. So I'm, I'm, because I'm, I'm Donald's brother. Donald didn't quite make it. <laughs> uh, so, well, thank you for your attention. So just to close, so letting be present, what was most important in the practice today? Possibly something that arose, an insight, a question? a reflection that came in the sitting or something that was important or inspiring in the talk and discussion. And seeing if there are any intentions which are there for you coming out of the the morning. And so as always, we dedicate this practice to the awakening of all beings knowing that we practice not just for ourselves, but for all others. May the fruits of this time together and of our practice be shared widely for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.